Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are. However you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams. All right, tonight I go inside the huddle with composer Huang Ro, who wrote An American Soldier, seen at Opera Theater of St. Louis last year. You're going to hear about his life in both his native China and the U.S., and find out what his upcoming opera is. But first, the nightmare that is Brexit continues to take its toll on everyone and everything, and that includes opera. That's in our Chalk Talk segment. Plus, two-minute drill, you're going to get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories, 847-866-9687. Or you can tweet us at Opera Box, or you can post on our Facebook page as well. This is a monumental Monday with just so much going on in the land of sports. Uh, NCAA Final Four, of course, and uh, Cubs first day, too. Weston Williams, how's life pretty good my bracket is uh you know doesn't exist but i was pretty surprised that the, by uh, i think it was auburn university got into uh, final four uh which mm-hmm. is uh which you know as a person who is you know from alabama legally obligated to support bama roll tide i am a little annoyed that auburn got that far but it's basketball it's not football it doesn't really matter so congrats to him and war eagle that's the only time you'll hear me say that i had virginia actually playing in the championship game in my bracket oh wow look at you go but the, everything else was a, com- was a complete mess uh cubs started mess. their home series today as well we're going to get to that later on in the show but there's something even more important coming up that's on oh, your yeah. dance card the the, the the sort of the sporting event of the season as it were uh on wednesday april 24th from 5 30 to 8 p.m at the aon center in downtown chicago that is the triviata event that is will be hosted by um uh, all of us here at opera box score including some of our co-hosts who are not here tonight but we will be um doing opera related trivia it's going to be really exciting. There's going to be drinks. It's going to be for a good cause, supporting the Ryan Opera Center. Come bring a friend, bring an enemy, uh, and crush them at trivia. That's what all I got to say. It is. It's going to be a ton of fun. And, uh, hey, look, here's a tip. If you buy your tickets online, uh, you can get those at lyricopera.org slash triviata, T-R-I-V-I-A-T-A. Just use, use the code OBS, Opera Box Score OBS. That's going to get you $30 tickets. Nice. 530 to 8 o'clock. 
on Wednesday, April 24. All right, let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That's what you're listening to on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD George Cedarquist in studio number one, along with Weston Williams. The nightmare that is Brexit continues to take its toll on everyone and everything in its dark path. And those smart guys and gals at the New Yorker wrote a very <laughs> insightful little piece. Uh, link is on our website, operaboxscore.com. You can also go to the New Yorker. This is from April 2nd, so we know that they weren't fooling around. This is no, serious, that, 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 Yeah, that, and once it gets in New Yorker, you know it's legit. Uh, this is a, a, a nice little article. It's not like a heavy-hitting news piece. I mean, obviously, we've talked about Brexit and opera a little bit before, but whenever something gets a little higher profile, again, I want to revisit it and give it a little bit more time to uh, kind of talk about it. So this particular article is really just about um, the, uh, the author Larry Wolf going to see La Forza del Destino uh, in London, and uh, just during all of the uh, during all of last week's protests uh, about you know just uh, everything. I mean, what hasn't gone wrong with Brexit? <laughs> but but it's really interesting um, because last week we talked a little bit about. I think it was last week. It might have been two weeks ago. We talked about how the Brexit is going to really affect uh, opera singers particularly because they won't be able to move as freely to. Uh, houses in Germany and Italy, uh, if they're based in England and uh, and all those sorts of things. Um, but this article is really sort of placing the entire thing in a much more sort of artistic context. Mm-hmm. It makes the point. Uh, I believe I'm going to quote the article here. Um, uh, he was he went to see um, La Forza del Destino, as I said, um, which uh, which, uh, which is by Verdi, by Verdi, Giuseppe Verdi. And uh, it points out that uh, in the 1860s, uh, when Verdi wrote the opera, it was, quote, based on a Spanish drama for a premiere in St. Petersburg starring a French soprano. Um, and uh, the, the premiere uh, was, you know, uh, not the premiere, the, the, this recent performance in London, you know, was, uh, was kind of similar in many ways in that it was uh, obviously Italian opera, but we had Anna Trebko and Jonas Kaufmann, neither of which are, are Brits and, and under any sort of, uh, any way you look at it. Um, and it was really bringing around this point that opera truly is an international sort of European art form. Um, and I thought it was really just sort of fascinating to sort of think that through because a lot of times in opera we tend to sort of get sucked into the uh, you know 19th century nationalist ideal of how things worked. Um, you always think of Verdi as the quintessential Italian composer, Wagner was the quintessential uh, um, German composer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But really, a lot of these things that we're based on are. are not really historically accurate. Wagner, you know, the Germany as a political entity, as a full country, did not exist for most of his lifetime. Most of his operas did not even take place in Germany. Most of them were uh, took place in Britain, essentially, because they're all Arthurian legends, right? right? Um, and uh, and even if you go all the way back to the very beginnings of opera, the first opera houses were in Venice, which fe- felt uh, what which it thought of itself as culturally distinct from the rest of all the Italian city-states. And I think that really examining the consequences of Brexit and leaving the EU within the context of of opera is particularly relevant because it's such... uh, It it is such an... uh, an, Sort of a... 
I want to say egalitarian. That's not quite the word I'm looking for, but it's an international sort of uh, art form. That it's a it's a totally international art form. You know, again, you look at the roster for this production of Forza at Covent Garden. Russian right. and German superstars, right? French baritone, Italian bass, German director, Anglo-Italian conductor Antonio Papano. There is no more international art form than opera right. that exists. Not even theater, I don't think, comes close to the way that you are gathering pieces written in one language, which may or may not be spoken by its performers. And at this level, singers coming from around the world, artists coming from around the world. And this is a problem. This is a big problem when you have this type of collaboration that wants to happen in such a toxic exclusive situation like Brexit. Absolutely. It's, it has already happened in Trump's America that major opera houses that are pulling in singers from from different countries around the world, they're having problems mm-hmm. getting visas, getting people into this country. And the same thing is now happening in Europe. One of the fascinating things I find about opera as an art form is that if you want to understand uh, European history and to a lesser extent uh, perhaps world history um, from the Renaissance forward, all you need to do is understand opera and you can see the parallels happening all throughout. All these different trends, all the all the different dominating schools of thought here and there. And this is really no different. Um, the forces that, you know, were behind the initial vote to get Brexit to happen were sort of these anti-elite, anti-European um, sort of people who who kind of really saw see the people who attend opera in Britain as kind of being in to some degree traitorous to what Britain is all about, um, which you know let me tell you is pretty hilarious coming from Britain's history of colonization. Uh, but it it it, re- <laughs> it really is kind of a, a fascinating way to look at the entire problem. Because here we have an art form, and art forms, uh, any art, is always going to have at least some political element, and there's some, some aspect of that art being able to change or come up against sort of the dominant sort of political and social norms. But here we also have an instance where you're not, it's not just the responsibility of opera to go against this, but it's also being threatened by it. And I don't think those two things are entirely dissimilar. Uh, when you have um, something that draws out a lot of artistic sort of um, ideas about unity of, of people and, and the, the sort of falsity of these sort of social political borders, that is when th- that artistic attack, that artistic sort of stance becomes very, very literal when it comes to the arts. In every sort of authoritarian government, you always see people um, going after artists and, uh, and, and first, you know, almost, you know, <laughs> which, you know, on the surface of it would seem very kind of silly because if you break it down in a very sort of a... a you know, a de- deconstructive sense. I mean, what are you doing? You're, you're standing on a stage and singing, but that's not really all you're doing. You're standing for something that is greater than you, greater than even perhaps the society that, you know, you are singing and performing in. 
And this New Yorker article really got me kind of thinking along these lines. And I was like, ooh, I need to whip out my philosophy degree from back in college and <laughs> just kind of go for it. And you did, And sir. I did. You did. Well, watch this space. Obviously, Brexit is continuing and continuing. No end in sight to that. Again, link to that article on our website, operaboxscore.com. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Huang Ro has been lauded by the New Yorker as, quote, one of the world's leading young composers and by the New York Times for having, quote, a distinctive style. His vibrant and inventive musical voice draws equal inspiration from Chinese, ancient, and folk music, Western, avant-garde, experimental, noise, natural, and process sound, rock, and jazz. I met... Huang Ro last summer at Opera Theater of St. Louis, and I caught up with him on the phone for an interview. The first thing I wanted to hear about from him was about his life growing up in China at the end of the Cultural Revolution and how he got to America. I was born in the year of 1976, uh, and I remember growing up in China in the 80s, uh, you know, when I have real memory, that's already in the early 80s. Um, and music at that time was not diverse at all. Uh, and little by little, with the um, you know, with China starting to uh, um, welcoming Western music to come back again, uh, I start hearing more you know Western classical music uh, and also um, pop music and. Uh, uh, rock music and jazz and all kind of uh, uh, different diverse music coming into China, and of course, including uh, contemporary music. Uh, my father is a composer, and his specialty actually is uh, vocal music and also uh, music for Chinese traditional instruments. So I heard uh, his music also, um, you know, I remember he just uh, play his music sometimes at night for us. Uh, I have three sisters as well. Um, and my mom, who is a doctor, but loves to sing. So uh, sometimes she would sing uh, uh, sing music for us as well. Uh, you know, um, she, she also knows a lot of folk songs, and she would sing those folk songs. And so, yeah, so those are my childhood memory. It's a very... Uh, how should I say, it's a very abstract collage of all kinds of different things and mixing together. You moved to the U.S. in 1995. And why was that? And what were some of the biggest changes to your life after your move? So um, at that year, um, I, uh, well, I won a competition for uh, high school students uh, and uh, as the a prize, I was invited to uh, come to the Oberlin College to uh, hear my music done by uh, the Contemporary Music Ensemble, we call it CME, uh, of Oberlin. Uh, and then uh, I came in December to uh, hear them play my music. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, the conductor, Mr. Kim Rice, before he performed the piece, and he told me, 
you know, we could not play exactly the tempo you asked for because it's not possible to play that fast. Uh, so they played the music back to me. It was slower than what I imagined. However, that was the first time I uh, uh, I hear my music played by a very fine Western ensemble. Uh, and I decided then, uh, actually, uh, you know, it would be great to... Uh, to study in the U.S. for my college, and I, I fell in love with Oberlin um, just from that visit. So later on, I uh, enrolled in Oberlin um, to study music uh, for for my undergrad. Uh, so that was what brought me actually out of China to uh, come to the U.S. and uh, purely for the reason of uh, wanting to uh, experience uh, new music uh, in a you know, uh, in in a place and in a uh, uh, in an uh, environment that uh, that could have music performed by very fine uh, young musicians and uh, like my age. So, in in your compositions, have you always mixed Eastern and Western music? Uh, well, I should put it this way. It was never an intentional act because um, I never thought about, oh, okay, this part is Eastern and that part is Western. Um, I think it just very naturally, I am writing um, the, the language I want to write. And uh, because of my own personal journey from the East to the West and um, in my music, naturally it has this both languages in that. Uh but again it's a very personal language. So um so I I do hope to think about that as um uh as a personal voice that uh, integrates um different elements and uh eastern elements in that and also western elements and uh but by east and west are such uh a vague terms but Within them, there are also many different, very subtle things as well. And do you, do you and do you find that you're mixing East and West through instrumentation, through the stories, through language, mm. through harmony and melody? In what ways are East and West being mixed in your music? Um. Well, it's not that easy to answer because it's always hard to this music. But I think um, sometimes um, I, um, you know, the maybe a very obvious answer will be uh, sometimes the Western instruments. Uh, I use certain techniques um, to um, uh, to play the Western instruments and people hear that could think of, uh, uh, you know, similar to Eastern instruments being played. Um, and uh, and harmonic language. I, I think it's more uh, aesthetic sometimes uh, in my music, particularly in very uh, slow and quiet passages. Um, it's more, how should I say, uh, meditative. Um, and maybe in that sense, uh, it, it 
it is closer to my eastern route. Um, but yeah, so it's it's the, it's hard to just give one example and one example only to demonstrate that. I do think that uh, once you hear that, uh, hear the music, and you will be able to uh, um, you know to 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 feel the integration. Uh, but uh, again, it, it's not a collage, but it's an integration. So it's hard to pinpoint where is what. That's a clip from Huang Rose Opera, An American Soldier, 
that clip called Moon Duet, sung by Andrew Stenson and Kathleen Kim, conducted by Michael Christie from the Opera Theater of St. Louis production. More with composer Huang Ro, including his upcoming opera that opens next week. It's after the break, only on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Sabra Boxcore and WNUR 89.3 FM in HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. George Cedarquist here with Weston Williams. I have been inside the huddle with composer Huang Ro. I spoke to him earlier this week via phone, having met him last year at the Opera America Conference and his production that he composed with librettist David Henry Huang of An American Soldier. That was at OTSL. Weston, how's life with you, by the way? Just oh, checking it's going. I'm it's just going sitting well. back, enjoying the interview, listening yeah, to that it's beautiful great. music. It's great. Well, in this uh, second half of the interview, we do talk about his collaboration with David Henry Huang. Huang, you and you and I met in the summer of 2018 at Opera Theater of St. Louis at the premiere of An American Soldier which was your piece Mm -hmm. with uh, the libretto by David Henry Huang. What was that collaboration like with David Henry Huang? Um, It is our second collaboration, but it was the first uh, collaboration on opera. Um, And we worked very well together. Uh, What happened was um, I wrote music for one of his earlier a play called The Dance and the Railroad for the Signature Theater in New York. And after that, uh, in 2013, uh, we decided to continue collaborating and uh, on opera, which he also wrote librettos uh, for as well. Uh, at that time, we were looking for opera subjects, and um, it was uh, uh, Francesca Zambella from the Washington National Opera actually contacted me and uh, uh, want to uh, uh, offer me a commission for her American Opera Initiative, uh, which is a 60 minutes long opera, new opera, uh, chamber opera size, and uh, looking for story and uh, libertas. So I suggested David, and uh, um, and she loves the idea. Uh, and so David and I were looking for stories, and and Francesca told me, you know, um, the only requirement the story sh- should 
the uh, as an American story. So at that time, David was contacted by David uh, by uh, Danny Chen's um, parents uh, through a representative. Uh, they wanted uh, David to uh, create a play based on uh, the tragic story of what happened to uh, Danny Chen. And David and I talked about this possibility, and at the end we decided um, opera w- w- will be the most uh, suitable um, genre and platform to uh, uh, to create a story based on you know the the uh, what happened. Uh, so at that time we created a 16 minutes uh, chamber music opera, chamber opera. And um, then forward to uh, uh, 2000, uh, I should say 2016. Um, so our chamber opera already premiered in uh, Washington DC at WNO. And uh, in 2016, we will offer uh, another chance to expand the opera into two acts. Uh, become a full-length opera by uh, Opera Theatre of St. Louis. Um, so, and that's the version you saw, the world premiere of the full-length version. Uh, it is still based on uh, the life and death of Danny Chan, uh, of what happened to him, but also we explore uh, a, um, a more diverse and uh, more uh, bigger picture of uh, basically the issue of race and uh, uh, the injustice of um, uh, you know of someone like him who went through uh, so much uh, in the army and what happened to him and also other stories as well. Uh, so through that to reflect on a bigger picture of issues in our society so that was that collaboration before we met just a few months before we met you had been in madrid at the world opera forum yes what was your role there what were you brought in to talk about so that was the first time um opera america and opera europe uh, and also, I believe the delegates from uh, Opera Latin America, uh, we all met to talk about, um, you know, uh, the current issues of uh, opera of today. Um, there are several big topics um, and diversity um, and equity. Those are uh, some of the big issues as well. Um, so. I was part of this um, uh, delegate uh, presenting um, basically artists, uh, creators of opera from America, and uh, what are our challenges and what are our stories. Uh, so uh, one of the topics I talk about is uh, um, what are the you know trends in new opera. Um, and one thing I said is um, um, multiculturalism, and I do feel that in 21st century, um, opera should be more diverse, not just um, 
uh, in casting, but also in and uh, in musical style as well. Uh, so uh, composers, librettists, uh, singers, uh, directors, you know, uh, all artists uh, can be coming from different uh, cultural backgrounds, uh, and and we create stories uh, from our own life and from our own culture, and. At the end, I do feel that there will be some point become interculturalism, where um, uh, the styles and the culture they will uh, integrate, and uh, so that there will be less division. Um, but we are uh, we are, you know, in a moment that we celebrate multiple cultures now. Paradise interrupted is your installation opera in one act from 2015 with a Chinese libretto, and it premiered at the Spoleto Festival, but later this year, it's going to be done in China. Mm -hmm. How is that going to be different for you? Yeah. How is that going to feel different? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think um, from its premiere in Spoleto Festival USA, and then we get the New York premiere in Lincoln Center Festival. Our audience are mostly, um, you know, a Western audience in in in, uh, in those occasions. Uh, however, after that, uh, we took the opera to Singapore, uh, and then to Taiwan last uh, December uh, for. Uh, for performances in Singapore, we did it in the Singapore International Arts Festival, uh, and then Taiwan, and we performed in both Kaohsiung and Taipei, and the audience are mostly Asian. So um, the basically, uh, I do feel that uh, one challenge for us is um, if it's an opera, a new opera, which uh, it has both uh, Chinese traditional uh, uh, operatic voice, uh, country opera singing, plus uh, Western opera singing. So in a way, it is uh, um, uh, integration or hybrid in that sense, a new opera of two very different uh, operatic forms into one. Uh, uh, so the question I ask myself is, when audience from different background, different cultural background, or different uh, country, when they hear that, do they feel differently? Do they get different things out? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, and, uh, you know, audience will come to me to ask me different questions. And uh, so in this year, later this year, we will bring it to um, my Macau in uh, late August, and then in Shanghai, we'll bring it to Shanghai in September. Uh, so I'll be also very curious to uh, uh, to see how the audience will react to the opera. Um, yeah, because one one thing to think about it is um, uh, because of my language, operatic language is neither purely Western nor Eastern. So for Western audience, and this is from my 
conversation, also experience talking to people, they would not feel this is uh, 100% Western offer. They feel there's something else in that. Uh, but also strangely, when we did it in Asia, uh, and they also would not feel this is a pure Eastern opera. So what is it? Uh, I personally do not have an answer, and and I think uh, I like it that way. If something could not be defined, uh, actually that brings more uh, brings more imagination and more excitement of doing it. So I would expect when we perform in China, uh, we will have uh, a very different kind of reaction as well. The next piece for you is an opera called Bound, which is being performed at the Baruch Performing Arts Center in New York, April 13 through 19. Mm -hmm. What is the piece about? So uh, Bound actually was my second opera, and uh, it was premiered in Houston uh, by Houston Grand Opera. Uh, um, uh, they call that HGO Co. Uh, in back in 2014. So this is the New York premiere, um, a new production we are doing. Um, at that time, I was very interested in. Um, the the struggles and the issues and the stories of uh, um, second generation um, young Americans from the first generation immigrants family. So what are their struggle? What 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 are their issues? And uh, the story is based on a true story of Diane Tran, uh, who is a teenager, a high school student senior uh, from Houston, and her parents are uh, first-generation uh, um, um, immigrants from Vietnam. Uh, and I think in our opera story, her mother was a refugee, uh, came from the, after the Vietnam War, uh, relocated in uh, Houston. And she, her family uh, went through, um, you know, her parents were divorced, uh, and she became the, 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 um, you know, the, the breadwinner of the family, and she has to take on a full-time job and in order to support her two younger siblings. And uh, because of that, she missed uh, schools. Um, in Texas, there is a law called the truancy law. If you miss too many days of the schools and ignoring warnings, and a judge of the family court could sentence you to uh, jail time uh, as a punishment. So, so Diane Tran, the, the real person, she was sentenced to prison for uh, one, one day, one night. Uh, and uh, so it was a sh very shocking story then. I remember seeing it uh, uh, on TV and uh, reading the story online. Um, and we decided that my libertas is uh, Baolong Chu, uh, who actually also came from a refugee 
family, uh, his own parents also ran away from the war uh, after the Vietnam War. So he also wrote from his own experience. Um, so to me, it was quite fascinating um, to be able to work with someone who has first-hand knowledge of what his experience is and also to, to have the challenge of writing an, um, a very current event. So I wrote that opera before I wrote An American Soldier. Uh, what was my thinking at that time actually is that because the Bang is a chamber opera, um, around 60 minutes long. Uh, and then after that, uh, I also wrote An American Soldier also is about a young second generation uh, in Asian American, what was his struggle? In Dennis Chen's case, he lost his life. In Diane's chance, she was sentenced to jail. Uh, so these are very touching stories and they are true stories as well. But the question to ask is, what happened to them? How did they come to this point? And, and what do we uh, get out from you know, hearing their story um, sung out on stage and uh, to ask questions. So basically those are my simple instances uh, when I create those two works. You are not only a composer, of course, but also the founder and conductor of Ensemble Future in Reverse, which has to be the mm -hmm. coolest name for a contemporary music <laughs> ensemble I've ever heard. Future in reverse, in that sense, uh, is uh, basically I want I I want to think about now is the future, um, and uh, if we focus on now, actually we are focusing on the future. So so it's the reverse of the future. Um, I don't know. I I just feel uh, basically uh, whatever we do today matters, uh, and if we could create a fascinating sound world of the world of today and uh, uh, and the, you know today we'll be um, reflecting on where we might want to be tomorrow so that was the idea and uh, the acronym is ensemble fire uh, future in reverse becomes the word fire um, so it is an ensemble that uh, mixed with, uh, um, you know, Western and Eastern instruments. Uh, you know, of, uh, so my goal is to create music that, uh, you know, I use the word integration again. Uh, I do hope that to not just this, uh, show, uh, not to display the instruments on stage as two different cultures, but also to have the audience hear them as a very organic entirety. So that's my uh, intention as well. Um, so for Paradise Interrupted, um, when we gave the New York premiere, uh, it was performed by Future in Reverse. And um, I remember there was some audience uh, uh, coming to me. Oh, so just want to talk quickly about the instrumentation of Paradise Interrupted. It was written for 13 musicians, 10 Western instruments, and three Chinese traditional instruments. So uh, 
I had artists came to me saying, oh, I could not really differentiate <laughs> where are the Eastern instruments. I say, well, you know, uh, that means you really listened to the music very well. So, uh, yeah, so that was the intent. Fantastic. Kwong, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Very happy to uh, share uh, share some words with you about all kind of what I do. Again, that was me inside the huddle with composer Huang Ro as well as composing. He is also the artistic director of Ensemble Fire Bound is playing at the Baruch College for the Performing Arts in New York City from April 13 to 18. Tickets at baruch.cuny.edu. What doesn't Lisette Oropesa do? That's up next on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. Lisette Oropesa is the winner of the 2019 Richard Tucker Award. The Heisman Trophy of Opera comes with 50 grand and is given to an American singer on the threshold of a significant international career. She also runs the New York City Marathon, by the way. Last night, the Laurence Olivier Awards were handed out in London. The Royal Opera House's new production of Katja Kabanova won Best New Opera Production. And the winner of the Outstanding Achievement Award in Opera went to the ensemble cast of English National Opera's Porgy and Bess, the same production that's going to come to the Met next year with a different cast. Speaking of Porgy and Bess, the Hungarian State Opera is in hot water again after allegedly asking the singers in its already controversial all-white production of the Gershwin Opera to sign documents saying that they identify as African-American. A source told the Hungarian website Index that while management may see the papers as a joke, some in the opera house are reportedly worrying they're not signing it could affect their future at the company. ENO was opening its doors to a wider audience. Literally, the ornate Edwardian doors at the entrance of the London House are deemed too heavy and imposing in a recent audience survey. So ENO is going to be adding glass doors in front of them to keep the excluding doors open to the public all day. Last week, Yannick Nezé-Séguin was interviewed by Terry Gross on WHYY's Fresh Air. In the interview, Nezé-Séguin 
describes his servant leader approach to the podium and the difference he perceives between conducting singers over instrumentalists. You can find the full-length interview wherever you listen to podcasts. Exit stage left Joe Bertoni, the engineer behind the iconic concrete sails of the City Opera House in Australia. He died last week at 97. Bertoni was a former French spy who was captured twice during World War II, decades before he put together the complex equations for what is arguably the most famous opera house facade in the world. And on this day, April 8th, Toby's real dad, Franco Corelli, was born in 1921, joined eight years later by Weston's real dad, Walter Berry, in 1929. British mezzo-soprano Diana Montag was born in 1953. She celebrates her birthday today. And Ponchielli's La Gioconda premiered in 1876. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box School with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Well, I'm sure those three boys are here in spirit right tonight on WNUR 89.3 FM, FM HD. George Cedarquist with Weston Williams. That's us. That's just us two, none of the others. Big stuff happening in sports today. Cubs beat the Pirates 10-0 on the home opener. This has got to be the warmest home opener the Cubs have ever had. I remember going to my bachelor party at a Cubs game in (laughs) April. It was like 40 degrees and uh, in the NCAA Finals, Virginia on top of Texas Tech. I wore shorts this morning. Shorts, George. I, I wore shorts. Okay. I wish I could erase that image from my mind. <laughs> they were right really now. short all the way up. You know, it's it, mm, good w- stuff. Porgy and Bess. Okay, so there's a, it's a doubleheader tonight in right. Opera Box Score for t- Porgy and Bess. you want to start with a good one or the bad one? I, uh, let's start with a good one because I, I, I need to warm up into the bad one. So I think the Laurence Olivier Awards um, are, um, you know, obviously it's a big honor. London's uh, equivalent of the Tonys. Yeah, exactly. I, I was kind of surprised, uh, um, and I believe you were too, that they did uh, they actually did operas, but um, apparently they do. Um, and uh, Porgy and Bess. I mean, really, the, I think the main takeaway here is just sort of um, the excitement for me um, uh, when the Met does it next year, because I, I, I quite like Porgy and Bess. I believe they're doing it uh, as part of their um, live in HD. Um, uh, next season, and I would be very interested to see uh, how they it all are. shakes out. It's a different cast, of course, but yes, it will be coming to the Met. The outstanding achievement. I mean, it's fantastic music. There's a ton of dancing. And I'm I, sure that ENO, as prescribed by the Gershwin estate, has right. an all-black cast. Unlike... <laughs> The Hungarian State Opera. You know, every time we have Hungarian State Opera in our two-minute drill, it's always something bad. It just always is. I, 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 there. So if you didn't, if you don't recall this production, uh, we, we talked about it uh, last time. It kind of came on our radar. Obviously, all-white production of Porgy and Bess. Little iffy at best. Well, it's illegal. Uh, contractually. Yeah, it, you you have to follow the prescriptions of the Gershwin estate. Exactly, exactly. And so they were they they're putting this on in blatant defiance of the Gershwin estate, which is not great. And then of course there's all the the racial stuff, also not great. Um, and um, you know, at a certain point, you almost want to step back and say they're an Eastern European opera company in Hungary. Obviously, they might not fully understand the intricacies of why um, making the cast white is as well as someone in the U.S. might, who's more aware of the African-American experience. However, this is not the first time something like this uh, has happened at the Hungarian State Opera. And this sort of, uh, 
and we, we should point out that this is an alleged documents to say that that they're identifying as African-American. Um, and obviously it could be just a bad joke and poor taste. But once you take into consideration all of the other things the Hungarian state opera has done, uh, especially since the election of Viktor Orban the, and his government, the, uh, the whole far right thing, it, it becomes real dicey real quick. This is the same opera house, the same general director, Sylvester Okovac, who last year canceled 15 performances of the Elton John musical Billy Elliot right. because right-wing media claimed it would, quote, turn children gay. Yes. So this is where we're coming from with this one. This isn't just, um, I mean, it, even if it is a joke, this is symptomatic of a much larger systematic problem with the Hungarian state opera and arguably with Hungary itself, uh, because obviously the being the state opera company, um, unlike in the U.S., lots of extra funding coming from the government there, and they very much seem to be bowing to um, uh, Orban and Orban's party in terms of artistic wishes. Uh, and I, I kind of think that's interesting, too, because, you know, here at Opera Box Score, we're always lamenting the fact that uh, operas don't get any you know, federal funding, right. you know, um, but there is certainly a trade-off when the people giving the funding funding are acting in a very negative or just just terrible way. <laughs> this, so. man, this guy, Okovac, this guy's got to go away. Yeah. This is, this is crap. This is absolute crap. I'm yeah. not talking about this anymore. Let's move on. French spy turned engineer. Who knew the guy who designed the Sydney Opera House was a spy? What's the story? This guy is fascinating. I mean, or I should say was, because he died last week at 97. Uh, and usually... That's when, a pretty good run, right, by yeah, the way. Yeah, that's not, not too bad, especially getting through World War II. He was captured twice by the Germans during World War II as a French spy, and twice he escaped from the camps that he was put in. Um, and so he, he lived a long, full life, uh, really in spite of the odds. Defying Nazis is always a great, great thing, you know. Um, but he moved to Australia in the 50s, uh, and he kind of got this contract for this new opera house. And, of course, um, constructing the facade, the famous sails of the Sydney Opera House, that is not an easy thing to do. Um, it talks about it a lot in the article, uh, in a couple of the articles I read about him. And they're all way above my pay grade. I am not an architecture person <laughs> by any means. Um, but uh, I think the most sort of impressive fact uh, was that uh, when he was designing it, there were like there were over like 3,000 I mean, was the 3,000 to 30,000 uh, mathematical calculations he had to do to figure out how to hold up these uh, sails properly, these big concrete sails. Um, and there was apparently only a, one or two computers in Australia that could process it, and they found zero errors wow. in his calculations. And it's still hanging out there to this day in the middle of the harbor, you know? It's, it's great. I mean, it's one of the seven wonders of the world. It is something that I have to see before I die. It's on the bucket list, definitely. I mean, the, just seeing the exterior of the city opera house alone would be fantastic obviously you want to see a show and speaking of well. exteriors to opera houses the english national opera um they have maybe had a little bit of a kind of the um <clears throat> uh kind of a they have an issue with their doors so these are these lovely sort of carved uh, edwardian doors they're big they're heavy they're really pretty I, I i haven't been to the english national opera but i did look at pictures of them i have many times been Drink. through those very doors and they're they're gorgeous apparently they did a little bit of consumer market research i guess you'd call it yeah, audience survey yeah yeah <laughs> and so it, it it feels like those doors are a 
if not a physical barrier, which they may be right. for people with mobility p- issues, mm-hmm. but they are also like a visual barrier or an economic barrier or a, a, yeah. a metaphor for a barrier. It's, it's, it's real tricky with me because this is something that we uh, see a lot, um, not just with the opera houses, but with theaters, with historic sites. Um, you, you don't really want to touch those and, and sort of ruin the effect. Sure. But when you're talking about opera, we also want people, we want it to be accessible. We want people to physically be able to come in. Yeah. Like you go to um, the, uh, the Lyric Opera of Chicago, and um, I mean, you can probably, if, you're, if you were in a wheelchair or something, you could probably get in on, uh, on, the, on the first floor, but none of the balconies are, are available to you at all. You know, it, there's no way to get down those stairs mm-hmm. and uh, up the stairs. Yeah. You know, it, 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 even if you can, it's very difficult. And this is something that uh, I've been very conscious of uh, working at various theaters, um, often with older patrons, mm-hmm. um, that they just they physically can't do it. And that right. keeps a lot of them away from the opera um, or the theater, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, and so that I, I understand the inclination. You want to be able to prop open those doors um, in order to get them in. But if you're propping open the doors, then you can't see the doors. And then, of course, there's also the issue of the cold. So you have to construct something around the doors, which continually, which, you know. It sounds like that's what they're going to do is they're yeah. going to these the wooden doors are going to be propped open. They're going to put a set of glass doors between the originals and the, and the sidewalk so that you get that barrier right. that, you know. My solution to this, I think, would be to probably just, you know, literally have a doorman. You know what I mean? To open and close the doors that for people. That feels way more elitist it to does, me, man. But it's I, not a hotel. <laughs> you know? I, I, it's I, not a Marriott. Well, here's, okay? the, here's the thing. It's like English uh, National Opera. Like, I think that, you know, having, having really accessibility is the main thing. Physical accessibility. And I think the, uh, the feeling, you know, psychologically imposing put in place by those doors... I think that's a problem that the audience, frankly, needs to get over. Uh, that shouldn't be the responsibility of opera houses and theaters to The other fix. thing is is that the, the pavement, what the English would call the sidewalk, they call it the pavement, is there's, it's very narrow there mm. between the street and the doors leading into English National oh, Opera. It's that oddly be... narrow. That could be a problem when you're talking about putting in those extra glass yeah. doors. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out. I'm sure they have a problem. The set wins the 2019 Richard Tucker Award. This was surprising to me. I, the threshold of a significant international career. <laughs> right. I, I, she's 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 been uh, international for how long now? You know, I was looking at her Wikipedia page, and she's been all over the place. Well, look, look, if you look at the lead on OperaWire.com. They asked, you know, what did you feel when you received the news? And she says, quote, I was kind of surprised to be nominated for the big award this year. I thought I was too old for it and far gone for it because I haven't really <laughs> sung too much in the States in the past couple years. Essentially, she's saying, like, yeah, duh, like, obvious, this this is a, this there's a mismatch. It, it's very odd. I mean, uh, she definitely does deserve, you know, she, she's done marvelous work, uh, beautiful voice. Uh, great technique. She's been all over the place, but it is kind of an odd one to uh, give to what is essentially should be an up-and-comer award. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, 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 that's not to take it away from her, as oh, you yeah, say, but not. but it, it 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 feels like um, should be giving is, her two awards instead of one. A little bit misplaced. <laughs> Let's wrap it up, man. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. A quiet night in Studio One with George Cedarquist and Weston Williams on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM HD. 
Any good calls? Any bad calls, Wesley? I think I got one. Uh, there's a certain uh, triviata coming up. That's the trivia hosted by us, Opera Box Score. If you want tickets, you can look on Lyric Opera's website, look at their calendar, and find it on Wednesday, April 24th. Or you can look on our website, uh, Opera, uh, Opera Box Score. Um, and you can also... Yeah, I mean, you can come meet us. You can get free drinks. You can uh, beat all of your friends in trivia. What's your study tip? I have a little study tip here. Participants may want to take a glance at Lyric Opera's 2019-2020 season for a head start on trivia answers. There's going to be a whole cycle of questions on the subject. Nice one, man. Well, we'll keep those little tidbits coming over the next couple shows. we got two more shows, uh, April 15 and April 22nd. Uh, again, OPS is your code. For tickets through their website, that's going to get you a $30 ticket, a little bit of discount. All of our crew are going to be there. Don't miss that chance to meet us. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra, with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please, leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera outdoors now that spring has finally sprung. We're back on Monday, April 15 at 9 p.m. Central when we go inside the huddle with the man, the myth, the legend, composer Jake Heggie. Plus, more opera news, our hot takes, and more comfort food. This is WNUR-FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.